0: Leah leaves her house at dawn, and the air still feels like winter. It's the time of year when Montreal is entirely unpredictable, frigid one day and sweaty the next. She thinks she sees gray flakes of snow as she wraps her thin coat around herself and hugs her arms to her chest. For weeks, she has prayed for good weather. The streets are nearly empty, but for a few milk carts, delivery trucks, boys on bicycles throwing newspapers against the closed doors, of the sleeping city. Tomorrow, they will own the front page of every one of those papers. This is GP Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to author Ariella Friedman about her third novel, Leah. It's about the famous Canadian activist Leah Roback, a woman who defied the expectations of women of her day to fight for workers and unions across time zones, wars, and against the usual wealthy owners who prefer not to treat their workers like human beings. Hi, Ariella. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So
1: what sparked your interest in Leah Roback? Um, I did a Jane's walk about four years ago. I don't know if you've ever been on a Jane's walk, but there are these incredible things that happen all over the world. They're urban history walks on the anniversary of Jane Jacob's birthday. So I happened to choose this walk about uh, pioneer union activists in Montreal. And um, it's coming up this weekend, the Jane's Walk. So if you're in a city where they're doing them, it's totally worth checking out what they have. So it was May, about four years ago, and I did this incredible walk by this incredible woman uh, who was a relative of Leah Roback. So Leah Roback was a socialist and a feminist and an activist, and she lived in the Plateau Montréal section of Montreal where we were walking around. And in that walk, this woman, Melanie Levitt, was showing me... The the um, factories, the newspapers, the union offices, um, the political offices of Montreal in the 1930s and 40s. And it brought to life for me such an incredibly interesting period in the history of the city and also in the history of the world, like this period of war and activism and revolution and also of tragedy. I knew I wanted to learn more about Leah Robach and I knew I wanted to learn more about my city. Mm.
0: Can you say something about Montreal in terms of the labor movement
1: and the community where, Leo was based. Yeah. So Leah Robeck was Jewish. Her uh, parents were Polish immigrants and they had, you know, fled as so many people did at the very beginning of the 20th century. And um, they landed in Montreal, but they actually ended up moving right outside Quebec city uh, for a number of years and running the general store. So there were all of these little towns in Quebec that had maybe like one Jewish family running the general store And she was in that very unusual position, which was really important because it meant that she learned very good French. She wasn't in a Jewish community. She wasn't in Montreal when she was a child. She wasn't surrounded with Yiddish and people like her, although she spoke Yiddish at home. She got really integrated into French Quebec, and then she moved back to Montreal, Uh, as a teenager. And when she moved back to Montreal, she was 15, 16 years old. She got a job uh, in the garment industry, which was a huge industry in Montreal. And immediately she could see how badly the workers were treated and how oppressive the conditions were. And that became part of her political awakening. Uh, The garment industry in Montreal was one of the biggest in North America They provided a lot of the clothes that were sold all over the United States and Canada. And after the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York, places like New York and places like Toronto, other capitals of the garment industry, had unionized and their conditions had improved and gotten safer. And Montreal's hadn't. And the story of why Montreal's hadn't is a complicated one. And part of it has to do uh, with the relationship of the government and the church in Montreal. The church was still really, really powerful in the city. And the church kind of colluded with the government and with the industries to Block unionization and to block the improvement of conditions. So, in the garment industries, about half the workers were new Jewish immigrants, Yiddish speaking Jewish immigrants, and about half of them were these very young French Catholic women from the rest of Quebec who came to the city to work. And they were churchgoers, and they would go to the church, and the church would tell them, it's a sin to organize with the Jews. Um, it's a sin to trust the Jews. Uh, don't trust your coworkers. <laughs> and, and that became this tremendous obstacle for any kind of movement of solidarity.
0: Hmm. Wow. How is Leah Robeck remembered in Quebec?
1: She's more famous among French Quebecers because she was such an important union activist, and because the history of the left and of labor activism. In Quebec is something that I think is very studied and very beloved by French language historians and French language thinkers. Uh, There's a little street called Le Robac down by the canal near one of the factories where she used to work. There's a Fondation Le Robac, a La Robac Foundation that gives scholarships uh, to women in need, and especially women in need who are pursuing projects related to social justice. Uh, there was a documentary in French about her a number of years ago by a very famous French filmmaker, Sophie Bissonnette. So in the French world, she's a celebrity. In the English world, and even in the Jewish world, she's actually much less well-known. Um, yeah, with one exception. Uh, which is other activists. She lived almost 100 years. I only tell part of her story. And she marched well into her 80s. So anybody who was alive and active in the left in Montreal, like up until the 1990s, they know her. She was beloved and um, famous, even notorious.
0: Hmm. So you uh, talked about the Leah Robeck Research Center? and and you also wrote about the maison parent yeah Robert. could you introduce both the interest institutions and explain how did they come to be endowed she never really made a lot of money
1: no she never made a lot of money in fact in interviews she talks about how bad she and her family were at at being bourgeois i don't think she believed in making a lot of money like she believed in you know showing up and Working for what you wanted, the Leah Roback Foundation was endowed partly by a bunch of her friends and other activists, and primarily they um, give scholarships and uh, support other women doing work like the work that she did in her life. Uh, so that's the story of that foundation. The Maison Parent Roback, Madeleine Parent was. Also, a very famous union activist um, and a Francophone, a French woman. Uh, she was younger than Leah. She met Leah and was so impressed by her and was mentored by her. And her story is a story that I think is even more well known in Quebec than Leah Roback's story. She's a very central figure in the labor movement. Uh, and that one is more of a research center. Uh, and they do work related to f- the history of union activism. Uh, in Quebec and in Montreal. But again, because Quebec is this place of two solitudes, that work in French doesn't always translate into English fame. Mm. I, I read that in your afterword that you're donating half the proceeds of this book to
0: the Leah Robeck Foundation. Can you say more about what inspired you to do that?
1: Because it's a literary novel, as you know, That is so far not a whole lot of money. Um, My hope, though, is that maybe if it's successful, I will have more to give. I felt like writing this book and not making some gesture of giving to the causes that were important to her was not really sustainable for me. Um, It helped justify the project to me, I think. Um, There's something a little bit complicated about writing a novel about a woman who didn't write she acted in the world in a very concrete way and it felt like translating some of that work of writing into the world of action Um, so if there's some kind of a like windfall with this book then I will be happy to continue to give more to the foundation I think they do really really good work Mm, so interesting.
0: Why did you decide to write Leah Robeck's story as a novel rather than an autobiography? I mean, I'm sorry, a biography.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I think it's probably because I love novels and because novels are the form that I'm most attached to. Um, I hadn't written a historical novel before, but I'd read Penelope Fitzgerald's The Blue Flower, which is about the life of Novalis. And she's got this quote by Novalis at the very beginning, where he says, you know, fiction makes up for the shortcomings of history. And I think what he means by that, or what what I saw from that was this idea that you could fill in all of these things that the historian can't really answer. What did something feel like? What was someone thinking? I know there are biographers who give themselves the license to imagine that, but in some way it felt to me like a biography that imagined things that weren't accessible in the historical record seemed like cheating, uh, but a novel seemed like it had a little more latitude like for that whole world of interiority and for that elaboration of the things that we don't completely know. Because there's a lot that we know about this woman's story, but there's a lot that isn't entirely clear. And I was more able to fill that in uh, under the, the veil of fiction, the forgiving veil of fiction.
0: It reads like a novel. I was just engrossed in the story. had to keep reminding myself this is based on a real person. Um, Who who else among the characters mentioned is a recipient of your personal admiration?
1: I'm uh, of the characters mentioned in the novel, you know, clearly my heart is with Leah. I, I find her so extraordinary. I feel like her ability to kind of continue to, Act and also her ability to be adventurous in a time that was very constraining for women is just amazing. Um, She's she's my heroine in this book. Um, I feel sympathy for her mother. You know, her mother was subject to this domestic life. She had a lot of children. She had a hard life. It seems like she had struggles with mental health as well. And I had Deep, deep sympathy for that. You know, in contrast, I think her father was was maybe her hero. Like if Leia is my hero, her father was one of her heroes. And I, I had a lot of love for her father. He just seemed like this like, very warm, compassionate man. Uh, there's a complicated character in my book who's also based on a real person, um, Fred Rose, uh, who was the first communist and only communist ever elected to parliament. And I have mixed feelings about him. I think he's really charismatic and really interesting. And I think it's possible that he's a little morally compromised. And what's right outside the edges of my novel is that the year after the book ends, he gets arrested on the accusation that he's been, um, sharing secrets with a foreign power, which is the Soviet Union.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So we didn't hear who else, aside from the mob, uh, is a recipient of your personal admiration. But I can understand that. There were a lot of characters with a lot of, uh, who revolved around her, who came in and out. So she's Canadian, but she ends up in Berlin during the rise of Hitler. Can you describe how
1: she gets out unscathed. She um, So as I said earlier, she was a super adventurous woman. She goes to France to study literature. Um, She goes to the Soviet Union to see communism in action. And she goes to Berlin and she ends up in Berlin partly because her brother is there. He's studying to be a doctor, Um, but she also decides to continue her own studies and she's learning German and she's studying sociology and linguistics. And there she ends up joining the Communist Party. And she has this experience of being at uh, the Blutmai, the the Bloody May Day in Berlin, where these communist activists were set upon by fascist and Nazi sympathizers, and the police just stood by. And I've got this line in the book, which I took from her interviews, um, where she says, this was my baptism by police. This is when I realized, you know, that the police were were not on my side. So it's a very dangerous period, the early 30s, and it's clear that things are getting less and less safe for Jews. And she um, goes to her teacher, who's Jewish, and he tells her, you have nothing to worry about. You're just being an alarmist. Nothing's going to happen here. Um, And she sees further than that, and she gets out. Uh, before things get too, too dangerous.
0: Um, Anti-Semitism is a subject that courses
1: through her life and all the places she lives. Can you say more about it? It's something that she experienced as a child. And it's something that she saw much more vividly um, in Berlin as an adult. I think that her relationship to it is complicated, because I think that ultimately, she was a humanist, she saw herself, you know, as a member of the human race. She believed very much in equality. She wasn't particularly aligned with her specific persecution. But I do think that her personal experience of anti-Semitism was part of what awakened her to the ways that people oppressed and targeted each other. I just think that ultimately her sympathies were were broader than the one group with, with which she was affiliated.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to say it. She's also a card-carrying communist, as you said. How does she continue to be passionate about it in the face of Stalin's atrocities that she starts to hear about.
1: Yeah, that was probably the hardest part of writing the book for me. And that was something that I was really interested in and very curious about and a little bit judgmental about as well. Um, My book ends in 1945. And in 1945, the scale of Stalin's atrocities were not evident. Um, It's not until, you know, the Khrushchev letter. Um, much, much later, that there is a a full reckoning with the degree of atrocity represented by Stalin's regime. Nonetheless, there were plenty of ways in which people (laughs) felt reservation about Stalin. Like they didn't know everything, but, but they knew enough. So one moment that is a real crisis moment for her in the book, and this was something that I had to imagine because it's not something that she writes explicitly about, um, is when Hitler and Stalin ally. And my sense is that that was a real crisis point for the Communist Party and that that was a crisis point for a lot of the Jews in the Communist Party and that the Communist Party lost a lot of Jewish membership uh, because it was so unspeakable and unthinkable uh, to be allied with somebody who allied with Hitler. And um, Fred Rose, who, you know, was a colleague of hers and a friend, you know, he speaks at the Communist Party meeting about distancing from Stalin at that point. And the party doesn't do that. And she doesn't do that either. Uh, she will resign from the party in, in 1958, uh, which is just a couple years later than uh, the Khrushchev revelations. I think that couple of years has to do with the kind of a loyalty that she felt. And I don't think it was a loyalty. It was definitely not a loyalty to Stalin. I don't think it was even a loyalty to communism. I think it was a loyalty to the idealism of the labor movement.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a bit about her work on unionizing factories? She not only uh, unionized, she worked on the line in a factory doing mind numbing work. Uh, day after
1: day. <laughs> yeah. So um, she was instrumental in uh, the garment industry strike, the Net strike, it's called, of uh, 1937, which was the first successful strike of women garment workers in Quebec. And um, she was able to do it because she was so fluent in French and in Yiddish, and because she was such a great mediator between these two communities, which Couldn't communicate and didn't have much in common. She became like she became the solvent. She became the common factor. So um, she had worked in factories before. But in this case, she got embedded in the factory in order to organize the union. Uh, that was instrumental on her part. And later on, she was embedded in other factories uh, like RCA, which was an electronics factory. And she did it again. She worked in the factory and then she worked to form the union, you know, from within as a worker, from her firsthand knowledge of the extreme conditions like overtime and no breaks and, you know, bad air and um closed windows and a a lot of risk of like harm and danger, a lot of injury. Um, So she changed things really dramatically. Hmm.
0: Um,
1: You spoke about her
0: gift with languages. She can, she says she can fake fluency. And then suddenly one day she finds herself fluent, Yeah, (laughs) which is amazing. As someone who spent two years learning Spanish and still isn't close to fluent, how, can you explain that? How was she able to do that?
1: Her uncle was a a language professor and her mother was apparently really good at languages, even though she wasn't an educated woman. I think it might have been kind of a family gift. I think it also was something where she grew up with these three languages. She had Yiddish and she had English and she had French from the very beginning. And I think that made her intrepid and it also gave her access uh, to the related languages pretty easily, like languages like German. Um, So she was somebody who just was very undaunted. When you listen to interviews with her, she'll kind of switch in and out of these different languages. You know, it, it wasn't just that she had this linguistic fluency she had this cultural fluency. She could go anywhere and she could be accepted among different groups of people and, and language gives you that, but you also have to be the kind of person who is uh, adventurous and culturally aware. I think at a certain point I call her a, a chameleon, but that's not even entirely accurate because she had the rare gift of being somebody who is chameleonic and somebody who also was really herself in different contexts and different circumstances like Mm. always energetic always active always an idealist so you have spent a few years a couple years
0: with this incredibly interesting woman and now she's on the page and it's time for you to move on what are you what are you going to work on next what can follow up after somebody of this
1: strength and character (laughs) This book was such a leap for me. I mean, you've read my second novel, and um, my first two novels—they're—they're they're pretty contemporary. Uh, they're first person. They're about thinkers. They're not about doers. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book about Leah Roback. I, I really wanted to write about somebody who was characterized by her action in the world, and and maybe tripped up less on her thoughts. Uh, was less plagued by the inertia of self-consciousness and more characterized by the world of action. Uh, But probably the world of thought is where I am most at home. Uh, I'm less like Leah and I'm more like my other narrators. Um, So I'm going to have to write my way into some new project. Um, I will say, though, writing about somebody who does things was... Really inspiring during the pandemic. You know, it wasn't just pledging some of the you know money from this uh, little literary book. Uh, I ended up going to protests. I ended up volunteering at a food bank. Things I hadn't been doing in the previous years, and in a time where it was really hard to do anything because everything was shut down and there was so much, I think, inertia and and despair. And I'm not sure I would have done those things if it hadn't been for the example of Leah Roback. So I'm not sure what I'm writing next, but I would like to be in the world in a way that is, that honors her legacy a little more.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Wow. I want to do that too. Yeah, Good idea. (laughs) We should all do that. Thank you so much, Arielle. It was a pleasure speaking to you for a second time about this, your
1: third book. And I look forward to hearing about the next one, too. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to talk to you.
0: And thank you for joining me today. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to author Ariella Friedman about her novel based on the real-life labor organizer Leah Roback, entitled Leah. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow, too. Happy reading.